you to open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 25. We're going to continue a series we began a couple weeks ago on the lifestyle of a steward. What does it mean to live as a steward? We're going to be receiving some lessons this morning from a parable Jesus taught. Jesus' parables were stories. They challenged our mindset, our attitude. They challenged the way we tend to live. And Jesus' parables are like a husk of corn. I've mentioned this before. As we peel away the husk, we discover inside the husk kernels. A parable is the husk. What's contained within the husk is kernels of truth. The beautiful thing about studying parables is we get to shuck the husk and begin to discover new and glorious truths. And so let's follow this story in Matthew 25, verse 14 through 30. Jesus is speaking, we know from earlier, to his disciples. And there's also surrounding uh, and within his, his hearing is the multitude, we're told. For it is just like a man about to go on a journey who called his own slaves and entrusted his possessions to them. And to one he gave five talents, to another two, and to another one, each according to his own ability, and he went on his journey. Immediately the one who had received the five talents went and traded with them. He gained five more talents. In the same manner, the one who had received the two talents gained two more. But he who received the one talent went away, dug in the ground, and hid his master's money. Now after a long time, the master of those slaves came and settled accounts with them. And the one who had received the five talents came up, brought five more talents, saying, Master, you entrusted five talents to me. See, I've gained five more talents. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful slave. You were faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Enter into the joy of your master. The one also who had received the two talents came up and said, Master, you entrusted to me. Two talents, see, I have gained two more talents. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful slave. You are faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Enter to the joy of your master. And the one also had received the one talent came up and said, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you scattered no seed. And I was afraid and went away and hid your talent in the ground. See, you have what is yours. But his master answered and said to him, You wicked, lazy slave, you knew that I reap where I do not sow and gather where I scattered no seed. Then you ought to have put my money in the bank, and on my arrival I would have received my money back with interest. Therefore, take away the talent from him. Give it to the one who has ten talents. For to everyone who has shall more be given, and he shall have an abundance. But from the one who does not have, even what he does have shall be taken away and cast out in a worthless slave into the outer darkness in that place. There shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. That's quite a story, quite a parable. There's a lot in there, and I hope that we can pull out of there many lessons for us in our life. I want to, I guess, define once again what a steward is, because it's kind of foundational to what we're talking about. A steward is someone entrusted with another's wealth or property or talents, in this case, and charged with responsibility of managing it for the owner's best interest. We see right off the bat that there's talents that are given. Talents is the New Testament unit of measuring. It measures weight of value. 
English, we obviously use talent to refer to skill or ability. Talent, its foundation, is something of great value to the Lord. It could be big, it could be little through our eyes, but in God's eyes, it's all important. It's a talent, it's something of great value, and it's a major factor in our life. So let's learn two things. I guess I want to look at this two different ways. What does this parable teach us about the master? What does this parable teach us about servants or stewards? We know the illustration of the master here, the owner, is God. It's referring to him. The servants, the stewards, are those who serve the master. That'd be you and I. And so let's, let's look at that through this, this order. The first thing we learn about the master is his ownership. Verse 14, right off the bat. Just like a man about to go on a journey who called his own slaves and entrusted his possessions to them. He's the owner. He owned them even. He was the true owner of all things. Possessions, resources, money, even the servants, they all belong to the master. He has a right to do with everything as he wishes. It's his right. Now, I think, Emma, you got a pencil for me. I think I saw you with a pencil. Can I borrow that, please? Thank you. Nice pencil, Emma. Appreciate it. Thanks. Nice pencil. Now, some of you are like, wait, poor Emma doesn't have a pencil anymore. You owe her money. Uh, kind of a mean thing to do. What right do you have, Matt, to break Emma's pencil? So you're upset. But what if I told you that's actually my pencil? I gave it to her before the service. Changes everything, doesn't it? Why? Because I'm the owner. As the owner, I have a right to do what I want with what belongs to me. And a little illustration points out, God is the owner of it all. He has the right to do what he wants with what he's entrusted. He's the owner. So with God, our master. Search and you're not going to find a single verse in the Bible anywhere that suggests God has surrendered his ownership to us. He's the owner. He owns it all. And we talked two weeks ago, that's foundational to everything of how you and I view our talents, our gifts, spiritual gifts, our abilities, our resources, our money, all of those things we're stewards of. Lesson about the master versus his ownership. We also learn from this parable about his power because throughout the text, the master's will is authoritative and it's unquestionable. None of the servants question his ability to make these decisions. His will is authoritative. His decisions are determinative. And behind his words is ultimate power. And again, it's unquestioned. Now some of you in your home might understand this. If you send your child to do something, there's times they kind of look over their shoulder like, okay, I'll get to it, and then they don't get to it. And what do you do as a parent? You remind them who just told them to do what they're supposed to do. In other words, what you're doing is you're saying, my name's Dad. Mom, this isn't a suggestion. Do it. Or there's consequences. What you're doing is you're reminding them, in a sense, of your power, of your authority. And in this particular parable, and others, Jesus makes it abundantly clear 
he's authoritative. But there's something else we learn about the master here, and that's his trust. Verse 15. And to one he gave five talents, to another two, and to another one, each according to his own ability. That's an interesting verse. And he went on his journey. God knows what you can handle, by the way. He's pretty good at delegating. But he's delegated to his servants significant assets and authority over their possessions to a certain degree. To me, this indicates a level of trust in the ability to manage them. God shows, in a sense, to trust us, to be honest and faithful. In a sense, he shows the willingness to risk delegating responsibilities to people who will fail. It's not often I'm not amazed that God has given you and I gifts, abilities, resources, money, and he's trusted us to steward them well. That's a scary proposition. I mean, and he knows us so well. And so we learn about this master's trust. Nobody made him in trust. He chose to do it. He chose to trust these servants. We also, though, learn about his expectations, verse 20 through 22. And the one who had received the five talents came up, brought five more talents. Master, you, look at this, you entrusted to me. You see that again in verse 22. You entrusted. In other words, these servants understood that there was expectation that came. That this master, this owner entrusted to them something, and with that entrustment came an expectation. Master had specific expectations of his stewards. They're not easy, but they were fair. And he has every right to expect his stewards to do what he asked. He has every right to expect them to respond. He expects talents won't be stolen, but expects opportunity to be seized to invest in kingdom work. And the servants knew of his standards, and they were not to presume upon his grace by being lazy. You see, God expects you and I to use what he's entrusted to you. We're not to sit on our talents. We're not to sit on our gifts, our spiritual gifts. We're not to sit on our resources. We're not to sit on the money he's given us. He is entrusted to us with an expectation we'll use him for his glory. And only he is the only one who has the authority to expect us to do that. But there's more we learn about the master, verse 15. We learn about his absence, and he went on his journey. The master would be gone for a season. Because he's not physically present, though, there's still a relationship. And consequently, delayed accountability. The test of each servant is to see if the master's standards are maintained, even though he isn't there to give immediate reward or correction. Growing up, I remember mom would say to us, okay, kids, you need to do this, this, and this. And we're like, well, your dad's not coming home for a while, so I got time, right? And then, and then we either make a mess of it or we didn't get to it. And mom would remind us in that point, when your dad comes home, or wait till your dad sees this. What was she doing? She was reminding of his absence. He might be physically absent, but he's coming back. So don't forget it. Get with it. Okay? So we learn about the master's absence, and we certainly, verse 19, learn that he will return. After a long time, the master of those slaves came and settled accounts with them. Master will come back. 
Maybe sooner, it may be later, but he could return at any time, likely when it's unexpected. And the scriptures, especially New Testament, point over and over and over that Jesus is coming back. We just sang about it. He will return. This parable, Jesus made sure we understood that this owner, he would return. Verse 21 through 23 tell us something else about this owner, this master, his generosity. Although he has a right to expect his servants to do right, the master graciously promised reward to the servant who's faithful. He gives praise. He says, well done. The master called him good and faithful. The master placed them in charge of many things. And the master invited them to enter the joy of his presence, to come to the master's table and celebrate. This tells us about the generosity and graciousness of our owner, God. There's a lot of lessons about the owner, about the master. A lot of lessons here about God, but there's also lessons about his servants. The first thing is recognize stewardship. All three servants seemed acutely aware that they were not the owners or the masters. This recognized stewardship resulted in the servant's job to take the assets entrusted to them and use it wisely to care for and expand the master's kingdom. If a servant did not fully grasp the implications of the master's ownership, we see with the third case it rendered them ineffective. You and I as well, if we do not fully grasp the implications of God's ownership of all things, it will render us ineffective in an exercise of being a steward. Once again, those talents, the spiritual gifts, the resources, the money are from God. Don't forget it. There's no such thing as a self-made man or woman. God is the owner of it all. The idea and the issue of stewardship is this key aspect of following Jesus. There's another thing we learn about a lesson concerning the stewards, and that is faced accountability. Because they don't own the assets, the servants are accountable to the master. They were accountable to him. The only one, by the way, who knew for sure was the master of what he would give them. They'd stand before him one day. The servant's evaluation would have been meaningless. It's what their individual standing before the owner is what mattered. We're told nowhere, by the way, that the servants knew what each other received. God gave them each according to their own ability. They probably didn't know what that was necessarily. And it didn't matter because everyone else's evaluation is meaningless. They faced accountability. 1 Corinthians 3 tells you and I there's one day we'll stand before the judgment seat of Christ. We'll be held accountable. And I fear there's going to be some awful embarrassed in heaven because we weren't faithful, played around like this third person, didn't take it seriously. But there's another lesson concerning servants here. It's not hard to miss this one. It's that of faithfulness, trustworthiness. The servants were not required to be eloquent or even educated. They weren't required to be especially gifted or good-looking. They're expected to be faithful. Bottom line, they're expected to be trustworthy. Two of the servants sought to be trustworthy to handle the master's estate in a way that would please him. They did this until his return. 
1 Corinthians 4, 1 through 3, I'd like to read something Paul wrote. He writes this to the church in Corinth, verse 1 through 3. He says, Let a man regard us in this manner, as servants of Christ, as stewards of the mysteries of God. And in this case, moreover, it is required of stewards that one be found trustworthy. But to me, it is a very small thing that I should be examined by you or by any human court. In fact, I do not even examine myself. Paul's saying as a steward, it's required of him to be faithful because ultimately, there's one he will stand before. And it's him he wants to make sure he's found faithful before. Faithful. Now, when we talk about being faithful, understand we're not talking about perfection here. We're talking about pattern. When we stand before God, we'll be judged on a pattern of our faithfulness. Not whether we did it perfectly. We won't do it perfectly. In other words, when God looks at us, he'll say, hey, did, were you long-term faithful or were you a flash in the pan? A pattern of faithfulness. That's the lesson. That's what God longs for us, to be faithful. There's another element here, another lesson concerning stewards, and that is industriousness. The servants weren't told exactly what to do. They had to be creative. They had to work hard, not slack. And get a load of this, they had a risk. They had five. To a certain degree, there was a risk as they invested it. They had to exercise intelligence, be resourceful, so as to multiply the investments for the master's kingdom. The goal was not to conserve. The goal was to multiply. There was a risk to help. To me, there's always a risk to help another person when your bank account's low. To give when it would... To give when you have an empty wallet, there's an element of risk. Verse 24, as we look at this third servant, we see a scary response. Verse 24, we read this. And the one who also had received the one talent came up and said, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you scattered no seed. He was too busy. Some are too busy. To, they're too busy cutting a new deal. There are others who don't want to be inconvenienced with the risk. It seems this third guy was there. He wanted to be inconvenienced. He had other stuff to do. He'll bury it. Master returns. I'll just give it back to him. I got other deals to cut. No faith. Either not, no faith in the, the master's return or no faith that God would allow him to multiply it. Either way, he buried it. So we read his faithlessness in that sense. Now notice when it was the third person, servant's turn to give an account, the scene changed. Instead of returning the entrusted money right away as the other two servants has done, notice what the third servant does. He starts by giving a little speech. Doesn't return it right away. Oh, my master, I know you're a hard man. And he starts giving this speech, why? To justify his laziness to justify his unfaithfulness, but it wasn't going to cut it. Because he was afraid to take a risk, he dug a hole and buried it. And that he lacked trust, he lacked belief, he lacked motivation. And to me, he lacked love for the master and the master's pleasure. Some here, you're afraid to step out. You're afraid to use your spiritual gift, your resources for the kingdom. You're afraid to use your talents because you're afraid there's going to be a cost. That God might direct you down a different path than you're beginning to map out for yourself. 
and you're afraid. Learn the lesson from this third servant. Invest in the kingdom of God. He'll multiply it. Don't hold back. Don't hide it. There's also a lesson here on readiness. To be ready for the master's return. Like soldiers ready at any moment for a barracks inspection, the servants are to constantly be aware that there's a day the master will return. And if they knew that day, they probably would have wasted time. Probably would have wasted their energy. Probably would have wasted their resources and talents for their own endeavor, figuring to replace it all because they knew when he'd come back. In God's wisdom, he knew all that. And so he says, I'm coming back. Might be sooner, might be later, but you better be ready because I will return. So you and I could live each day for his glory. There's also an element of a fear of the master is another lesson we learn. There's this healthy awe and respect. Even the third steward acknowledges, I knew you to be a hard man. I knew you to be just. And in that, there was a recognition that the owner is to be feared. But he knew it here, but he didn't know it here. And it didn't result in action. God's instructions, God's expectations, God's standards are high, but they're fair. And if you and I serve wisely, we know that he's fair. But he's just and he's faithful. And might it be our goal to please our master. And this healthy fear motivates us to be good stewards. It causes you and I to be single-minded in our service. Because wise stewards live Their life revolved around service for their master. Why stewards live with a life that says, I have one thing I want to do today, please God. I want to invest all I have, give all my energy, give my time, give everything I have for one purpose, one purpose only to please God. Yes, it might be highly risky. Yes, it might be an inconvenience to my agenda or schedule. But ultimately, when all said and done, as a servant, I want to please my master. One of the overriding lessons, I think, of this parable. Let's look at some overall lessons. One, it's concerning you and me here, is the long-term significance of today's behavior and choices. How you and I handle God's assets, gifts, abilities, entrusted in our present daily lives has tremendous bearing on eternal realities. It's the kingdom principle of the law of eternal harvest. What a man reaps, he sows. Talents, gifts, energies, you and I use in time for eternity. You and I. Long-term significance of today's behavior and choices. Number two, it's our responsibility to step out and invest for his kingdom. They traded, we read that word. They risked these talents. You and I are to give those talents, these gifts, these abilities, not in a measurable form so we can kind of control it, We're to invest it, however he tells us to do that. You and I need to be continually looking to invest all that we have for his kingdom. Don't try to bottle up your life. If you do, you'll surely lose it. Surrender yourself and all that you have to his cause again and again and again. Be a wise steward. One of the tragedies in the church today 
is we have so many teachers who will go into the secular marketplace but won't turn and serve and teach the church. We have leaders who will go out in the secular world in the marketplace, but who, when it comes to the church, they're nowhere to be seen. That's a tragedy. There's unwise stewards who don't understand. But praise God, we got teachers. We got leaders. We got those who work in industries who go out in the marketplace but will use their gifts primarily for the kingdom of God. That's a wise steward. That's what God calls you to be, faithful. It's our responsibility to step out and invest for the kingdom, not the person next to you. It's your job because he's given you gifts and resources and abilities according to your ability. So you and I have an individual responsibility. In a sense, you could say not giving is never a financial solution or any solution. Not giving is actually a source of financial problems in God's economy. Not giving time, not giving our abilities or resources is never a good idea. In that sense, as you and I surrender to our master's will. Our focus on rights and responsibilities is another lesson for you and I. As stewards, our rights are limited by our lack of ownership. Instead, we manage the master's resources for his benefits. We carry no sense of entitlement. It's our job to find out what the owner wants done with his assets. In the moment we begin to focus on what we deserve or think the master owes us, we lose perspective and our service deteriorates rapidly. And number four, the meaningless of everyone else's evaluation. This principle is critical. Every, everyone else's evaluation of how you and I handle what God's entrusted to us is meaningless compared to the judgment you and I will one day face before our master. In that day, we'll stand before God. And it won't matter how many knew your names. It won't matter whether they thought you were great or thought you were a fool, whether you had a big house or a little house. What will matter is one and one thing only, what the master thinks. Make that your focus. When I first moved here, I was introduced to apparently a huge, huge event called the Corn Carnival. So I knew somewhere in there there would be corn. I'm a brilliant man. And sure enough, the clergy said, hey, for three, four hours we get to serve corn. I'm like, oh, this will be great. Little did I realize the lines of people who would come for this. Not just one. I didn't know you could take ten. I mean, there's some like bringing boxes up and bags, and I'm like, good night. All this corn these people want. Their great desire for corn was amazing. I wonder if there's a long line this morning for those who would grab these kernels of truth, these kernels from the husk, and live like stewards. Might God find your desire and my desire lived out in applying these truths as stewards for his glory? Might you and I be in line of faithful stewards? Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your wisdom. Your wisdom as we look at your word and see parables, stories. Lord, that allow us to visually see truth. It's one thing to see it. One thing to know it. But Lord, we're of those who want to apply it. To live it. We confess, God, we don't do so well. 
we get enamored with things around us and even lose focus as we look at other people. And it's so easy to do, and yet we come with no excuses. We come asking forgiveness, but we come, Lord, asking help. By the power of your Holy Spirit that dwells within us, might you give us a singular focus each day, bring to our mind those moments we need it, the reminders that you own it all, and that we are to steward well. And Lord, might we look forward to that day with joy and expectancy, not dread. Might we live for one thing and one thing only, and that's to hear you say, well done. And we know it's only possible in the power of your name, Jesus, so we pray it in your name. Amen.